you know, I was thinking as Ryan was talking that uh, I look forward to this every week. I don't know if you guys do or not, but it, it's something for me. It's like the highlight of my week. And it's not because I, I do this on Sunday mornings and so my whole week builds toward it, though that's true. Um, I love corporate worship and gathering with God's people and really authentically uh, joining our, our hearts and our voices in praise to Him. Because for me, at least, it's like there's an hour, or in my case, I get to do it twice. So there's two hours in my week in which everything feels to me to be about as close to right as it can get. And it reminds me, and I hope that it reminds you as well, that a day is coming and it will be an eternal day in which everything will be eternally right. And that's cause for praise too. So don't forget that when you sing. All right, well, one of the things that's always amazed me is I've looked back, uh, not just at the advent, the coming of Jesus, but also at the advent of His gospel in this first century Christian church that we're studying in the book of Acts and that we're learning to live life as mission from, is all of the things that God put into place to prepare the world for the really rapid spread of the gospel. It seems to me, as I look back with the benefit of hindsight, that God had the world all teed up. He really did. I mean, if you just think about it, Jesus and his gospel came into the world when? Well, at a time when there was a one-world empire. Rome had conquered almost all of the then-known world and not just conquered it, ushered in a time, a season in history in which there was peace. For Rome, with its power, maintained the peace. So that's helpful. But not only that, Rome then connected it all with a Roman road system for which they're still famous today. But not only that, there was also a one-world language. And I know you're thinking, what do you mean? Are you saying that everybody spoke one language? And the answer to that is yes and no. If you were French, you spoke French and Greek. If you were German, you spoke German and Greek. If you were, you know, from Italy, you spoke Italian and Greek. Everybody spoke Greek in addition to their native tongues. Why? Because in the providence of God, before Rome conquered the world, the Greeks did. And in addition to their culture, which we'll get back to in a second, the Greeks spread throughout the world their language. It was the lingua franca. It was the language of the people. So if you're thinking about this then, God has teed up the world, has He not? Because here's the deal. His gospel comes into the world at a time where you could travel anywhere in the world. No borders. No problems. No conflicts. You could travel on the road system. That's sweet, right? And no matter where you went, you could communicate with the people. Striking. It's remarkable. But the Lord did more than that. He not only prepared the world and teed it up for His gospel practically, He prepared it spiritually as well. In other words, He cultivated in the hearts of the people in the world a readiness for this message. And for many people, he did that through the Old Testament Scriptures. And if you think about this study of the book of Acts that we've been doing so far, okay, we're in chapter 11. Well, up until today, the only people who have received the gospel are people who already knew at least some part of the Old Testament and who were already, at least in some way, shape, or form, looking for its Messiah. So it's gone forth to the Jewish people. They had the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. They were looking for the Messiah. It's gone forth to the Samaritans. They had at least the first five books of the Old Testament. They signed off on that. They, too, were looking for a Messiah. It's gone to the Ethiopian eunuch. You're like, aha, he's from Africa. He's a Gentile. And he's awesome, isn't he? Do you remember his story? Why does he come 800 miles to Jerusalem? Because he knows the Old Testament. 
And whether he realized it or not, he's looking for its Messiah. He's looking for salvation. He's looking for forgiveness. In fact, when Philip, as you'll recall, meets with him in the desert road, what is he reading? He's reading the scroll of Isaiah. And where is he? Isaiah 53, which speaks uniquely of the sufferings, death, burial, and perhaps even resurrection of Jesus. And then last week we got together and we saw how the Spirit miraculously moved Philip, or Peter rather, from Joppa... 35 miles to Caesarea and how the Spirit miraculously prepared this guy Cornelius for the reception of Peter. And Peter then brought, because the Spirit said, you must do this, the gospel not only into the heart of this Gentile Roman centurion, but into the home of this Gentile Roman centurion, a home that until that moment in time, as a Jewish man, he would have never entered. But the Spirit had moved so undeniably that there was like, there was no way he couldn't do it. There was no way he couldn't get the message, and not just him, but if you've done your personal worship this week and you read the first part of chapter 11, you know that he had to go back to Jerusalem and explain to the church how why it is that he as a Jew went into the home of this guy. It's defiled, or is it? No, that was the message. Do not call unclean what God calls clean. And when he laid the story out and how the Spirit worked for that Christian church, that Jewish Christian church in Jerusalem, how did they respond? They responded with worship. It's wonderful. And they realized, wow. So the gospel is is even for the Gentiles, but wait. What did Luke tell us about Cornelius last week? said that he feared God. And I said, that's a technical term, a God-fearer. You know what that means? That means that he was already a convert to Judaism and everything pretty much but circumcision. So then he knew the Old Testament, didn't he? He's looking for the Jewish Messiah. Is he not? Today that changes. Today the gospel will go forth to a group of people, Gentiles, who don't know the Old Testament. They don't look for the Messiah, at least overtly, not consciously, and yet, who I want to tell you, I think God also cultivated the soil of the hearts in. And I say that because, again, before the Romans conquered the world, the Greeks conquered the world, and the Greeks spread more than their language into the world. Guys, they spread their culture. They spread their art. They spread their philosophy. They spread their plays and their poetry. And it changed everything. For centuries, I would submit to you, it was like God was like a, like a carpenter coming to the hearts of the Gentile world that did not know his Bible and were not overtly, at least, looking for his Messiah, sort of with his hammer and nails and some wooden pegs, and he started nailing to their hearts all of these little pegs through the Greek culture, through the Roman culture as well, that the gospel preachers and teachers and writers could then later come to that same world and go, my goodness, look at all the pegs. Okay, I'm going to hang this truth about Jesus on this peg and this principle on this peg and this awesome reality on this peg and this peg and you get the idea? They were all teed up. They were ready to go. Give you an example. Euripides, centuries before Jesus entered into the world and the gospel went forth in this church, through this church, to a world that's all teed up. He wrote a play, and it's an award-winning play called the Bacchae, and it became part of that Greek culture that was then spread throughout all of the then-known world with the Greek language. It's studied even today. It's a play that was known in the first century. It had formed that culture. 
Well, what is the Bacchae about? The Bacchae is about a God-man. It's about a guy named Dionysius who is a God-man. His father is Zeus. His mother is Semele. She is a human. He has a human mother and a father who is a God. So there's a concept. There's an idea. This God-man enters into the world to go to a city in which he's supposed to be revered but isn't being revered. And he goes to the city to find out why he's not being revered. And he goes to the city disguised as a man. In fact, he says, to these ends, meaning to this investigation, to these ends of investigating this, I have laid my deity aside and I go disguised as a man. And when he arrives, he's arrested, he's humiliated, and he's abused, and he voluntarily submits to the whole of it. At the end of the story, he pours out his wrath for the sins of all the people in that city on one guy named Pentheus who at the end of the story finds himself trapped in a tree, surrounded by women, one of which is his mother. Now that sounds familiar, doesn't it? I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that I think that the gospel writers pattern the story of the life of Jesus in any way, shape, or form after a fictional play that was well-known in that day. It would have been, in my opinion, ridiculous for them to do so, obvious to everyone in that culture if they had, and Christianity would have been over real quick. What I've just laid out for you are pieces of the story that I've culled out of the story and carefully put together in just the right order for you to recognize them. And what I haven't done is given you any of the radical dissimilarities between that story and the story of Christ. But what I'm pointing out to you is that there were pegs hanging there. God-man, these kinds of ideas, substitutionary atonement, wrath poured out on one for the sins of many, that these Greeks who knew nothing of the Bible and the providence of God had come to understand. And there's so many other things like that I could point to to help you understand it. But, But the point here is that the whole first century world is teed up for the gospel. Even the people who don't know the scriptures and aren't at least consciously looking for the Hebrew Messiah. And my point as well is that this truly exemplary first century Christian church that we've been studying and learning together to live our lives as mission from, at least until today, is not seizing the day. They're not getting it. That changes. It changes here in chapter 11. And what I want you to see is why that changes or really what it takes to make it change because it's not a road system and it's not a Greek culture and it's not a common language and it's not all of these advantages. It's none of those things. It takes, and here's what it always takes, a movement of the Holy Spirit to change that, to make them stand up and seize this remarkable opportunity for God's kingdom. And so my bottom line for today is this, the mission requires the encouragement of the Spirit. And He encourages us, by the way, directly as He directly interacts with our lives. We saw that last week with Peter. It's remarkable. But He also encourages us indirectly through other Christian people who become oftentimes the voice of the Lord to us if we have hearts and ears to hear what the Lord is saying to them or to us through them. That's the part I want to focus on. As we pick up our study today in Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19, 
where Luke says this, and it takes a little explaining, so hang with me, okay? He says, now those, meaning the Jewish Christians who were originally part of the Christian church in the city of Jerusalem, that's where it all started, as you'll recall. Those Christians who were originally part of that church, who were then scattered out of that church and out of the city of Jerusalem to a whole host of other cities because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. Let's replay the tape for a second. The church is founded in the city of Jerusalem. It's taken off like wildfire. Okay, Jewish people, both Greek-cultured and Judean-cultured, but Jewish people are coming to faith in their Messiah, in our Messiah, in droves. And then we hit chapter 7, and Stephen is killed for the faith. And on that same day, persecution breaks out against the Christian church in Jerusalem, and what happens as a result is some stay... But many flee for their lives, and they scatter out of that city, and they scatter out of that church. And what Luke is saying here is that those people then traveled as far as Phoenicia, which was on the Mediterranean coast northwest of Jerusalem, and Cyprus, which also is northwest, and it's actually about 40 miles out to sea in the Mediterranean, very important island and city, but then also Antioch. That's the place of the story today. Antioch was a very significant city in that day. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Multicultural, multi-ethnic city located pretty far north of Jerusalem on the Orontes River. Well, they scattered out as far even as Antioch, we read, and here's what they do. They go, scattering as they go, speaking the gospel word about Jesus, but speaking it to no one except other Jewish people. There is a logic to that. I mean, you know, these other people were all teed up and they knew that. They just didn't recognize that the rest of the world was too. I mean, those guys knew the Scriptures, so it's clearer you would go to them. But the gospel is going to go to more than them. And that's what Luke says next. He says, but there were some of them, men, and it's important, not from Jerusalem or Judea. Men not from Jerusalem or Judea, but rather of Cyprus and of Cyrene, of multicultural, multi-ethnic, Greek-cultured cities who on coming to the multi-ethnic, multicultural city of Antioch for the first time in church history spoke the gospel to the Hellenists also, meaning to these Greek-speaking, Greek-cultured Gentiles who, unlike Cornelius, are not already converts to Judaism. They're not already conversant with what we would call the Old Testament. They don't already know what the expectations of the Messiah were or weren't. And they weren't necessarily, at least overtly, consciously, looking for him. But notice now what happens. And a great number of those people who believed turned to the Lord. Why? Because the hand of the Lord was with them. The hand of the Lord was with these preachers to that class of Gentiles, which really represented the rest of the world. The Spirit empowered their preaching. The Spirit empowered their teaching. He took what otherwise would just be words and He made them into life as they germinated in the cultivated soil of these people who unwittingly, unknowingly had all these pegs already planted by God in their hearts 
upon which these preachers and teachers just started hanging all of these concepts and ideas about Jesus that helped them understand who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what he will yet do. They really, if you think about it, took the gospel to its logical conclusion, which is that it must necessarily, by definition, be for everyone. Why? Because how do I gain a proper standing in relationship with God? Is it by my own efforts? Is it by keeping Jewish dietary laws? Is it by keeping the Sabbaths? Is it by, you know, keeping the festivals? Is it by doing anything? Circumcision? It's none of those things. My Savior has done all of those things for me. He has met all of the righteous requirements of the law of God in my place, and He takes away all of my many failures and washes it away with His blood. My goodness, that opens the gospel up to anyone, to the world. And these guys who understood this group of people and took the gospel to its logical conclusion... Man, they just started preaching to the Gentiles. It's awesome. And the hand of the Lord is upon them. And a great number of those people who believe turned to the Lord. And then we read that, that the report of this came to the ears of the mother church in Jerusalem. And now look at what these guys do because it's really beautiful. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. And I say that that's beautiful because if you were with us in chapter 5 of the study, well, then you know that Barnabas was himself a Cypriot Jew. He was from Cyprus. Well, these guys are at least partially from Cyprus. They're sending one of the kinsmen of these guys who are leading this revival amongst the Gentiles. Very carefully chosen guy, but then in addition to that, do you remember what his name means? It means son of encouragement. Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And they send him to encourage these people in Antioch who are on the cutting edge of kingdom work in that moment in time in history. And the Spirit encourages these guys in an awesome and mighty way. In verse 23, it says that when Barnabas came and saw the grace of God in this great revival breaking out amongst the Gentiles who previously knew nothing about the Bible or its Messiah, he was glad. And he what? It's the key word. He exhorted. It should, I think, be translated encouraged. It's translated encouraged in like every other translation. But this one... So he encouraged them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He came with like a truckload of gasoline and poured it on the fire that the Spirit had begun, and he created a conflagration. It's stunning. It's awesome. And now I'm going to do something I almost never do. I'm going to tell you the Greek word that's translated here, exhorted or really encouraged. And I say that I almost never do it because I watch people glaze over when I start to talk about Greek. But it's worth the journey. So hang with me for a second. The reason why there's some discrepancy as to what English word to use is there's no good English word. Encouragement, I think, is the best English word, but it doesn't capture it. The word in Greek is parakaleo. It's a compound word. Parakaleo. Okay? I'm not going to give you a quiz on this. But you need to understand each part. Para means to come alongside and to come alongside in a way that is sensitive and attuned to the needs of the person that you're coming alongside of and to come alongside not to shout down, not to put down, not to direct or instruct necessarily, but to come alongside with a heart full of helpfulness. I'm going to help you like a paramedic or a paralegal, okay? Hang on to that because the word kaleo means to call and not on the phone, but to action, 
It means to see that there is a battle to be fought, in fact, a war to be won, and to say, charge to the troops, even when the easiest and safest course would be to retreat. So what kind of encouragement does Barnabas bring? Does the spirit through Barnabas bring? What, what, what is that? What does it look like? Well, it's the encouragement of a godly, mature Christian man whose heart is tender toward God's people, who comes alongside God's people as an enabler, as an encourager, as a, as a helper, one who is attuned to the people, sensitive to the needs of the people on the one hand. And on the other, one who is courageous enough to tell the people what they really need to hear as opposed to what he knows they'd rather hear. A guy who's courageous enough to say charge, even when at times maybe the thing that they'd rather hear is retreat. That's a significant and important point. So the mission requires the encouragement of the Spirit. That's the whole idea for today, and it's an encouragement that he brings to us oftentimes through other Christian people who, like Barnabas, come to us with a heart full of helpfulness, come to us with a sensitive spirit, come to us in genuine and true affection and love, come to us in tenderness and sensitivity to what's going on in our lives and and attuned to our needs and conditioned, however, who are also not so cowardly that all they're capable of doing is patting us on the back and affirming us even though we're wrong or going way off course, but instead who are courageous enough to, to command us to charge even when they know we'd rather retreat. And so Luke says in verse 23 that when Barnabas came and he saw the grace of God in this great revival, he was glad and he backed up the gasoline truck. And he just started shooting flames, man. He encouraged them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And now look at the effect of his encouragement. There are all these signs of it. There are all these fruit of it. It says, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So his encouragement, again, the gasoline of his encouragement, took this evangelistic effort that was already taken off and just blew it up in big numbers. So it resulted in great evangelism. In fact, so many people were added, we read here, to the Lord that by Barnabas, that, or that Barnabas rather, went to Tarsus to look for Saul, who's better known to us as the Apostle Paul. And when he had found him, he brought him back to Antioch to help him disciple these people. He said, man, there are too many people for me to pour into here. I need an associate pastor. And boy, did he get one. Wow, did he get one. He brought him back to, to help him disciple these people. Well, so his encouragement results in discipleship. It's a pretty good list we've got going. And for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul, I mean, like, how would you like to have had those two guys as your pastors? That would be unbelievable. For a whole year, what a privilege, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, it's like, and here's the result, the disciples were first called Christians or Christ ones or Christ people, those whose lives manifested so much so, so obviously, so visibly, the reality that they were tied to Christ, that they were called Christ people. Christ one. It results in a Christ-likeness, in a conformity to the image of the Lord Himself. So there's another fruit. But there's more, for we then read, Now in those days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up 
and foretold that by the Spirit, he said, there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place, Luke tells us, in the days of Claudius and the history books back that up, by the way. And so now notice what else their encouragement brought forth. It says, so the disciples of Barnabas and Saul there at Antioch is the idea determined everyone according to his ability to send financial relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders of that church by the hands of Barnabas and Saul, sending it to a church that, like, I mean, you know, they didn't know all these people. Results in generosity. So what's happening here? What's happening is that under the encouragement of Barnabas and Saul or the Apostle Paul, these people who previously knew nothing about the Bible, nothing about the Messiah, no expectations in that regard, are not only coming to true and authentic faith in Jesus, but they're coming to learn to live their lives as mission for Jesus. And as a result, this is one powerful church. Not only were they the first church to be called Christians, as we'll see later in the narrative of Acts as we move forward, this is the first church to call, to train, to support in every way world missionaries and to send them out into the world that God had all teed up for the gospel. It's one of the most significant churches in history. Amazing people. Look, the mission requires the encouragement of the Spirit, which is an encouragement that He often brings to us through people like Barnabas. They're tender people. They're sensitive people. They're attuned to our kind of unique needs people. And they're courageous people. They tell us what we really need to hear versus what they and we know (laughs) that they know we'd really rather hear. And oh, do we need those people today? Because I'll tell you, I think that our world is all teed up for the gospel, and not just technologically, though that's obvious. Our world's gotten a lot smaller, hasn't it? I think it's teed up spiritually too. I think that we've transitioned, at least in Western society, I think that we've transitioned from a people who look to science and reason for all the answers for all of our questions in life to a people who have realized that science and reason really don't have all the answers to all the questions that we have in life. In fact, they leave us quite wanting on the most significant of them. And so we've traveled, I think, from being a not very spiritual society to being an incredibly spiritual society, but not an incredibly spiritual society that's showing up in Christian churches looking to find their answers in Christ and why. I don't know that I have a complete answer, but I think part of the reason is because Christ's people don't look like Christ ones to this culture. Our lives are not so manifestly and clearly evidence of His reality, of His character, of His nature, of His selflessness, that they think, you know what, I think those folks have an answer to something uh, that maybe nobody else has, or let me put it differently, I think we need to do a better job by the power and encouragement of the Spirit. It takes the movement of the Spirit to do it in living our lives as mission. And that's what we've been focused on all year. So, for example, we've said that if life is mission, then marriage is mission. And you've heard me say this. It's something that we need to do differently from the rest of the world. Why? Because it would be really beneficial to us? Yes, it would. And that's absolutely the wrong reason. It's about the mission. That's why. So that the rest of the world notices that there's a something different. And when they ask us about this something different, because they share a, a concern about this thing, then we can introduce them to the difference, and that difference isn't me or you, it's Jesus. 
It's huge, but it's very difficult to do this if you don't have a Barnabas in your life whom you are purposefully and intentionally transparent with, who you know loves you and is looking to help. It's hard not to listen to a person like that. It really is. And who's courageous enough to point things out and to lead you to the cross and to call you to a greater level of obedience, not just for your benefit, though you will benefit, but for the benefit of the gospel, for the benefit of the Lord, for the benefit of the world that needs to see this done better. Jesus is the issue. We've said that if life is mission, then business is mission. Okay, again, something we need to do differently. So the world notices. All right, but here's the problem. We, all of us, do business in a world, in a society, in a culture, in a city that values and promotes and even expects you to be dishonest. It rewards dishonesty. Here's how you know if the guy sitting across the table from you whom you're negotiating something with is lying. His lips are moving. It's about that simple. It really is. You expect that he's lying. He expects that you're lying. And here's the deal. If you don't lie, he might take advantage of you. And you might lose money. But you might in the end gain a convert or two along the way. And look, when life is mission, that's the point. That's the goal. But that is a lonely mission. And you're not going to be able to do it very well without a Barnabas, at least not on a consistent basis, without somebody who you're transparent with and they can see and speak into that part of your world, your ethics, your business. It's a big deal. Then, of course, if life is mission, then sex is mission. You've got to throw that one out all the time because it's all the time on TV. It's all the time around us. It's all the time. It's like one of the singular biggest issues that we deal with. We live in the most hyper-sexualized culture that I think has ever existed. It's going to continue to become more and more hyper-sexualized, not less and less hyper-sexualized. And honestly, this point applies to every single one of us here in this room. But frankly, as a dad, when I think about this, I think about our kids I think about what they're growing up in and what they're exposed to. My goodness, they don't have to look any further than their phone to find it. And they don't even have to go looking for it. It comes looking for them. It comes looking for me. It comes looking for you. And yet, and please hear this, for the sake of Jesus, we and they are called to sexual purity. That is a very important point. If we're coming to our kids and trying to scare them into sexual purity by saying, you know, there are things these called STDs, and you don't want any of these, let me show you some pictures. We're going to, you know, that doesn't work. Sexual purity is not about avoiding STDs or avoiding unplanned pregnancies or avoiding any of the real hurt and regret that a lot of us live with because of this area of life. It's just, it's not. It's about Jesus. Every area of life is about Christ, and we need to fall in love with Him, and they need to fall in love with Him, and then through radical self-denial and sacrifice, we and they need to say that He means more to us, and He's more satisfying than sexual self-fulfillment. And then I'll tell you what else we need to do. When they fail, and they will, 
Most of them. Just like most of us. And we had it easier. We need to come to them with that same Savior and help them to treasure His blood and His gospel and His sacrifice. And we need to come as broken parents to broken children, as broken friends to broken friends, as clay pots all of us cracked in different places, with great humility and help. And then lastly, if life is mission, then money is mission. It's the currency of this world. It's the lingua franca of our day, the language of the people. And the world needs to see us genuinely value and use it differently. That's an attention getter. And it's about Jesus. That's what it's about. It's about his mission. I may have shared this story with you. One of the disadvantages of doing this pretty much every week is I don't remember what I've said. So um, if you've heard it, you know, just bear with me. But Bill Hybels, who's a pastor near the Chicago area, tells a story about a guy in his church who had the gift of making money. And that is a gift that some people have and everyone else prays for, right? I mean, just be honest. You want that gift, uh, and a few, very few of us actually get that gift, and this guy had that gift. And he was very generous with his money. I mean, all along the way, he would be a level one giver. He would tithe his money. He'd give his 10%, you know, and then he'd give beyond that. He'd give to this and he'd give to that and this building project and these missionaries and this cause and all of these different things. He spread it around very liberally as the Lord directed. But eventually, because he's so good at it, he had so much that he said, my goodness, I can retire. My kids can retire. I mean, I don't need to do this anymore. He retires and enters into the life that he had planned for himself. And didn't find it so thrilling. And he had some aha moments in his retirement, like, I'm really good at making money and that's about it. And I never retire from the mission of Christ. There's never a day when I, I kind of get to the point and go, yeah, I've done my part and I'm done now and let the rest of those people do it. No, that's called death. That's when we retire, when he takes us home, seriously. So this guy said, okay, I've made enough, I I got enough, and my kids, and we're all kind of good, and so I don't need money, but I'm great at making it. He went back into business and dedicated 100% of what he made to kingdom missional works. And he called Bill Hybels up and he said, okay, look, I just want to meet for lunch. And they sat down across the table and he said, here's what I need from you. Just every once in a while. And maybe you need this this morning. He said, I just need you to look at me in the eye once or twice a year and say, and I'll just call him Jim. He said, I want you to say, Jim, you are not crazy. That's it. Then we can eat our sandwich and go. He said, I just need you every once in a while to look me in the eye and to say, you're not crazy because here's the thing. My accountant thinks I'm crazy. My business partners think I'm crazy. People in my family think I'm crazy. The world worships this currency. It speaks this language. And they think I'm nuts. What is he asking his pastor to do for him? He's saying, be a Barnabas to me, man. In this area of my life, I, I just I need for you to just be the voice of the Lord to me every once in a while to keep me on track, 
that I might use the gift that God gave for me or to me in ministry for his purposes with the kind of zeal that I need to use it, with the kind of consistency that I need to use it, that I might develop it and throw myself into it the way that I need to until my race is run and my days are done. So be a Barnabas to me. Because here's the deal. The world's all teed up. Waiting for us to learn how to live our lives as mission. But it requires the encouragement of the Spirit. The encouragement that comes through people like Barnabas. So I have an assignment for you this week. Like before next Sunday, this is the deal. If I come up to you next Sunday, I'm not going to ask you about this, so you don't need to stay home if you blow it this week. But I would love it, I would love it if next Sunday you came to me and said, okay, here's the person. Between now and then, find your Barnabas. Look for that spiritually mature man or woman. Someone that you can trust. Someone whose spirituality and walk with Christ you've, you've witnessed and admire. Not a perfect person. You're not going to find that person. And Barnabas isn't that either. But someone whose heart you know is true. Who you invite, you empower to come alongside of you. And you invite and empower them by deciding and committing to be purposefully transparent with them and letting them into your world. We live in a culture that, you know, we're increasingly growing isolated. We don't have to go much further than a computer for anything that we need at this point. This is not that kind of relationship. Invite them in and allow them to tenderly, to helpfully, to sensitively, to in a way that shows an attunement to who you are and where you're at and what your needs are to speak the truth to you in love, to tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear, what you need to hear. Someone courageous enough to cry charge in whatever area of your life for the gospel. You need to charge in, even when it's easier to retreat. And they know it, and you know it. That, folks, is a valuable friend. Valuable to you, but more importantly, more importantly, valuable to the kingdom, valuable to the world. All right? Simple, at least conceptually, isn't it? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you for your Holy Spirit. God, we thank you for the Spirit who has awakened in our hearts faith, who has awakened in our hearts conviction, who awakens in our hearts the reality of who we are and our need for our Lord. He awakens in our hearts, Lord, as we come to His Word, as we grow in our relationship with You, greater and greater and greater images of the beauty and of the treasure who is Jesus. Lord, He breaks in our hearts all of the things we treasure more than Him. Spirit, do Your work in us as individuals, as, as families, as men and women, as husbands and wives, as sons and daughters, as friends, and as a faith family and as a church. 
God, encourage us by your spirit directly as we come to your word and as we pray and all the other ways that you interact with us, but encourage us through each other. Awaken in our hearts a desire for one with whom we can be transparent. That is a scary thing. But let us treasure your mission more than the things we'd rather hide. Let us treasure our Savior more than the things we'd rather keep that are not bringing us life but death. Bring each one of us, Lord, at least one Barnabas, at least one, and do it not just for our benefit. Do it for your glory and the good of your mission in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.